Today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. From the streets to the peaks, DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers, and creators. Over the past decade, DB has designed and developed, released, and refined the best bags in the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you're able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, or tote. Now, I've traveled a lot, especially with my parents living on the other side of the country, and I can't tell you how important it is to have the right bags. I've gotten my bags packed, and they've had holes in them. I've tried the hard ones, and the hard shell ones have been cracked. So it really is important to travel with the right luggage. We are teaming up DB exclusively to offer our listeners 10% off your net purchase by using the code POD10 or going to the link in our show notes. DB is time to move on, time to get going. So if you look below, we're going to have the link in the description. Welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And as always, I want to thank you so much for joining me. I see we have listeners in so many new countries, Turkey, South Africa, Norway. I know we've had listeners from Sweden before, but thank you guys for coming back and joining us again. Brazil, it's just so wonderful to see that I'm reaching people from so many places around the world and we're happy to have you and we hope you continue to keep coming back like i have heard me say so many times before i never thought i would be doing this for so long and i'm going to try to keep doing it and keep bringing you interesting stories and explanations of these kind of crazy and insane murders so i'm so happy to have you um as an interesting side note Um, During the beginning stages of COVID and the pandemic, um, when I was working from home at my day job, I did spend a lot of time watching a lot of Nordic uh, noir and crime shows on a streaming service we have here in the United States called Falter Presents. So I've learned a lot of interesting things about countries in Scandinavia. And also uh, I found myself watching this show and it wasn't until literally the last five minutes of the show that um the main character said he was going back to oslo that i realized that i thought i was watching a swedish show and it was norwegian the whole time so i make sure to actually read the descriptions now when i'm watching any foreign language show so i actually know what country it's taking place in so uh 
I really do appreciate um, all of my listeners from everywhere around the world. And it makes me just appreciate all the different cultures that I reach and all the different countries that I reach with this show. So this is probably like the fifth time I've said this so far. Thank you so much again. And um, we do still have the shop up. I'm putting in some new Christmas stuff. I'm working on a Christmas uh, sweater for you guys still. I'm going to have a Halloween shirt for you guys. Um, So I'm working on that. It should be up within the week. so the link will be up for the merch store and same with the uh, Patreon um, over on the YouTube channel. Um, we are doing the research for the bracket tournament so you can help us figure out if anybody in the United States has the ability to dethrone Thorda Man as the dumbest criminals in the United States. Uh, so check that out. And uh, without further ado, we'll get into this week's case. Uh, That will be the case of Mr. Cullen, a murderous nurse. There have been numerous cases of medical or healthcare serial killers, or HSKs as they're referred to, all throughout the world. Dr. Indira Kinkin, an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of Virginia, has highlighted cases of healthcare serial killings that have increased dramatically since the 1970s. Ten cases were recorded within that decade, the 70s, and by the 2001 to 2006 period, this number had risen to 40 cases. In a presentation at the annual meeting of the American Academy of Psychiatry and Law, Dr. Kinkin showed the majority of cases took place within a hospital setting, 72%, but 20% of the cases happening in nursing homes, and 6% within the patient's actual homes. Over half of all cases were carried out using lethal injections. Often, victims were elderly or very sick, and their deaths can be put down to natural causes rather than suspicions being raised. In most cases, a cluster of deaths raise a question, and the most common form of killing is through use of injectable substances, only detectable through toxicology reports. In many cases, the age and health conditions of the patients mean such tests are not carried out and the crime remains undetectable. Criminologists have begun to examine cases in order to try and identify common traits among such healthcare professionals, predominantly nurses, who turn on their patients. Using the term healthcare serial killers, or HSK, rather than angel of death nurses, criminologists have found some interesting results through their research. Published in the Journal of Investigative Psychology and Offender Profiling, the research carried out by Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and Dr. David Wilson, both prominent criminologists, have been influential in the understanding of such crimes. Attention-seeking, strange behavior when a patient dies, frequent changes in hospital working locations, and a disciplinary record have all been flagged as common factors seen in healthcare serial killers. This research examines 16 nurses, both male and female, who have been convicted of murdering patients within a hospital setting. Cases examined included Beverly Allett, probably known most well as the Angel of Death nurse serial killer in the United Kingdom, 
Alette was a healthcare nurse who, in April of 1993, was convicted of the murder of four children and the attempted murder of three others, also of inflicting grievous bodily harm on six other children, all in just a three-month period at Grantham and Kestavin Hospital in Lincolnshire, England. Further case studies included Victoriana Chua, convicted of two murders and 19 poisonings at Stepping Hill Hospital in Stockport, England in 2015. Colin Norris, who was convicted in 2008 of four murders carried out in 2002 in Leeds, and American Charles Cullen, who we're going to be looking at today, who confessed to killing 40 patients over a 16-year period in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. In many cases of murder within healthcare settings, the perpetrator has carried out multiple killings before they ever get caught. This repetitive cycle suggests a pleasure is received from the acts of leading to, leading many to believe there may be an addictive element to their murderous behavior. Access to drugs appears to be the enabler for all of these crimes, with the most common method of killing being poisoning, with the majority of cases included in the study. The largest, uh, the largest used drug being insulin. Beverly Allette was the only case in the study that used two methods of killing, poisoning and suffocation. Of the 16 offenders studied, over 50% had a history of mental health issues of some kind and signs of severe personality disorders. A 2006 study examining 90 cases of healthcare serial killers from 20 different countries between 1970 and 2006, found that 86% of those who became serial killers within healthcare were nurses, both male and female. Further research has categorized healthcare serial killers in accordance with their motives. These categories show the range of motivations and psychological rewards achieved by those in the medical profession who kill their patients. According to Dr. Kinkin, they can often be categorized into these groups. Thrill seekers. These are individuals who achieve a thrill from the act of killing, a thrill which they want to repeat over and over again. It's much like a high. Power oriented. In this group, they kill to achieve a feeling of power and control. Dr. Harold Shipman is an example of a medical serial killer who falls in this category. Gain motivated. These individuals receive something from the act of killing. This may be relieving a burden by removing the patient from their care, or they may be able to steal money or belongings from their patient. Missionary killers. This is far less common, but these serial killers within healthcare who believe they are doing a good deed by getting rid of people who are immoral or unworthy in some way. These are the type of people that you see on Criminal Minds that they call mission-based killers. You know, they have to complete a mission. Further to categorize by motives, studies have identified a number of character traits and behaviors which may, when combined, be a warning sign for potential medical serial killers. A history of mental stability, mental instability. Preference for night shifts are shifts with less staff and supervisors on duty. Night shifts tend to be the least staff shifts, not just in hospitals, but especially if they're working in 
any type of mental health facility that has medication needed. It's an easy way to tamper with meds that might be given during the day so that they can take suspicion off of them. I've worked in patient mental health care and usually there's like a bare minimum of like one or two staff per like unit on a night shift just enough to like keep things running because everybody's supposed to be asleep and when you do have um when you're drug certified in a place like that yes you have access to medications and sometimes it's not always nurses who have access to medications so a night shift it's that's why it's preferable because there's little to no staff um on a night shift like i said it's a skeleton crew it's just the the most basic and minimal of staff History of difficult personal relationships. A tendency to predict when a patient will die. Felt patients were a burden to them and an annoyance. Now, these are the people who are going to complain. Oh, Mrs. Smith is just, ugh, she's always just such a, a strain on my energy and my time. They're the type of people who will complain that someone just keeps hanging on. They don't understand how do they keep hanging on? Why do they keep hanging on? Why won't they just let go? Like that should always be a red flag because if you're a nurse, obviously you're supposed to do no harm. You're supposed to want people to get better. You shouldn't be complaining that they haven't just gone ahead and died yet. Having a problem with substance misuse. Now this isn't always like, obviously they're saying it's a combination with several things, but substance use itself shouldn't be a red flag in and of itself, especially since in the medical field, next to uh, police officers, doctors and nurses have one of the highest substance use rates in the country. So in and of itself, that's not a red flag. Often moving from hospital to hospital. Now, healthcare professions are very difficult. Being a nurse, especially right now during COVID, is super demanding and difficult. But um, normally, under normal circumstances, when we're not in a pandemic situation, nurses tend to stay at the same hospital for years, um, even decades. Some of them spend their whole career in one place, especially in a hospital setting. So it should be a red flag if they can't keep a position at least for one full year. If, if they're only staying for a few months at a time, that definitely should be a red flag. An important area highlighted by research was that in many cases, the fact that the nurse was on shift during all of the killings has often been cited as the main piece of evidence towards guilt. However, this should not be the case and their presence in the hospital at the time of death is not enough alone to point to guilt. Like I stated, you can work the night shift and tamper with medication when you're on the night shift. So um, a patient won't die till another shift. So that isn't always a sign of guilt. Like if you've tampered with meds and you're tampering with meds is actually what causes someone to die, then another nurse may actually give the patient the meds that cause them to die, even though you tampered with the medication. So just your being there isn't necessarily a sign of guilt. A recent case in the United Kingdom saw a 48-year-old nurse, Victoriano Chua, sentenced to a minimum of 35 years for two murders and 19 poisonings at Stepping Hill Hospital in Stockport. Convicted in May 2015, Chua maintains his innocence, claiming he is not responsible for these crimes and is going to prison as an innocent man. A further 10 deaths at the hospital across the time span 
Victoriano Chua was working are now currently under investigation with concerns that these two may have been the result of foul play. Although in 94% of the 16 serial killer nurses that were studied by Dr. Yardley and Dr. Wilson, the death rate when those nurses were on shift was higher than average. The researchers highlight the importance in looking at the data as a whole and not using one trait or characteristic in its own to implicate an individual, as I stated. Charles Cullen was born February 22nd, 1960, in West Orange, New Jersey. Ironically enough, my aunt lives in West Orange, New Jersey. The youngest of eight children in a deeply religious Catholic family. His father was a bus driver, and in West Orange, his mother stayed at home to raise her children. Cullen's father died when he was an infant. Two of his siblings also died in adulthood. His father uh, molested him as a child. Cullen described his childhood as miserable. He first attempted suicide at the age of nine by drinking chemicals from a chemistry set. Now, why many of you may not understand why that could be a problem, pre-9-11 chemistry sets had incredibly toxic chemicals. Now, many of the things that were in chemistry sets pre-9-11 are actually on the terror watch list. I had a chemistry set when I was very young, given to me by my grandfather, who was a science teacher, and I actually used it to light things on fire. I just used the chemicals to make things combust, and that's pretty much the only thing that I used it for. So take that into mind when, you know, they're saying that he drank the chemicals from the chemistry set as a form of a suicide attempt. Absolutely, he could have poisoned himself from the chemistry set. This would be the first of 20 such suicide attempts throughout his life. Later, working as a nurse, Cullen fantasized about stealing drugs from the hospital where he worked and using them in one of his attempts. In one attempt, he took a pair of scissors and oh, jabbed them through his head. He was rushed to the hospital and he had to have a major surgery. When he was 17, his mother died in an automobile accident. His sister was at the wheel. Devastated by his mother's death, he dropped out of high school and enlisted in the Navy in 1978. He was assigned to the submarine corps and served aboard the ballistic missile sub, the USS Woodrow Wilson. Cullen rose to the rank of Petty Officer 3rd Class as part of the team that operated the ship's Poseidon missiles. Already, Cullen showed signs of mental instability. He once served a shift in a green surgical gown, a surgical mask, and latex gloves stolen from the ship's medical cabinet. He was transferred to the supply ship, the USS Canopus, not cannabis, Canopus. Cullen tried to kill himself several times over the next few years. His last attempt led to his being discharged from the Navy in 1984. After leaving the Navy, he attended Mountainside School of Nursing and got a job at St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey in 1987. That same year, he married Adrian Taub, and the couple eventually ended up having two daughters. Today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. From the streets to the peaks, DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers, and creators. Over the past decade, DB has designed and developed, released, and refined the best bags in the market. 
with DB's patented hookup system, you're able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, or tote. Now, I've traveled a lot, especially with my parents living on the other side of the country, and I can't tell you how important it is to have the right bags. I've gotten my bags packed, and they've had holes in them. I've tried the hard ones, and the hard shell ones have been cracked. So it really is important to travel with the right luggage. We are teaming up DB exclusively to offer our listeners 10% off your net purchase by using the code POD10 are going to the link in our show notes. DB is time to move on, time to get going. So if you look below, we're gonna have the link in the description. Cullen ended up committing his first murder on June 11, 1988. Judge John W. Yango Sr. had been admitted to St. Barnabas Medical Center suffering from an allergic reaction to a blood thinning drug. Cullen administered a lethal overdose of the medication intravenously. Cullen admitted to killing 11 patients at St. Barnabas, including an AIDS patient who died after being given an overdose of insulin. Cullen quit his job at St. Barnabas in January 1992 when hospital authorities began investigating who might have been tampering with bags of IV fluid or intravenous fluids. Cullen then took a job at Warren Hospital in Phillipsburg, New Jersey in February of 1992. There, he went on to murder three elderly women at a hospital by giving them overdoses of heart medication, digoxin. His final victim said that a sneaky male nurse had injected her as she slept but family members and other healthcare workers dismissed her comments. In January 1993, his wife, Adrian, filed for divorce. She later filed two domestic violence complaints against him. The divorce papers and domestic violence complaints depicted Cullen as an alcoholic and someone who abused pets by, oh, oh, that's horrible, sorry, placing them in bowling bags and trash cans and pouring lighter fluid on other, into other people's drinks and making prank calls to funeral homes. Cullen had shared custody of his daughters and moved into a basement apartment on Schaefer Avenue in Phillipsburg. Now, if you know much about people who have certain, what they call the dark triad, which are three characteristics that come together to indicate that you're a serial killer, one of them is the abuse of pets. So all of a lot of the psychopathy, the abuse of the pets, you know, he has these behaviors here that actually would be indicative of him possibly being a danger to others. And back then in the early 90s, uh, these type of understanding uh, would they would not have had these type of understandings. I don't even think they knew of the, the dark triad back then. Cullen says he wanted to quit nursing in 1993, but court-ordered child support payments forced him to keep working. In March 1993, he broke into a co-worker's home while she and her young son slept, but he left without waking them. Cullen then started phoning her incessantly, leaving numerous messages and following her around at work and all over town while she shopped. The woman eventually filed a complaint and Cullen pled guilty to trespassing and was placed on a year's probation. The day after his arrest, he attempted suicide again. 
He then took two months off work and was treated for depression in two separate psychiatric facilities. He attempted suicide two more times before the end of the year. I feel like this, just this alone should have been a red flag. Um, I don't know about then. Now, when they do background checks, um, they do do checks to see at least certain facilities, not all, but when you do work at certain facilities, especially if you're going to be working on psych wars or in psych floors and around psychiatric medications, they do do certain type of background checks that will let them know if you have um, worked or if you have um, been treated for mental illness. And sometimes they do ask you on records. They can't make you tell them. You can choose not to disclose um, because it would be a HIPAA violation to make them force you. But um, psychiatric records can come up on certain types of background checks. Um, it's why when they do, uh, they do the broader background check when you go to adopt because if you do have psychiatric issues, they're clearly not going to let you be a foster parent or adopt. So the same kind of background checks they do for foster care, um, they do for working in certain type of facilities, but not all facilities have that level of a background check. Cullen left Warren Hospital in December 1993 and took a job at Hunter Medical Center in Rarity Township, New Jersey early in the next year. Cullen worked in the hospital's intensive care cardiac care unit for three years. During his first two years, Cullen claims he did not murder anyone, but hospital records for the time period had already been destroyed at the time of his arrest in 2003, preventing any investigation to his claims. However, Cullen did admit to murdering five patients in the first nine months of 1996. Once more, Cullen administered overdoses of digoxin. Cullen became a licensed nurse in Pennsylvania in 1994. Cullen found work at Morris Memorial Hospital in Morris, New Jersey. He was fired in August 1997 for poor performance. He remained unemployed for six months and stopped making his child support payments. In October 1997, Cullen appeared in the Warren Hospital emergency room and sought treatment for depression. He was admitted to a psychiatric facility but left a short time later. His treatment had not improved his mental health. Neighbors said he could be found chasing cats down the street in the dead of night, yelling, talking to himself, and making faces at people when he thought they weren't looking. In February of 1998, Cullen was hired by Liberty Nursing and Rehabilitation in Allentown, Pennsylvania. He worked in a ward for patients who needed ventilators to breathe. In May, Cullen filed for bankruptcy claiming nearly $67,000 in debt. Liberty fired Cullen in October 1998 after he was seen entering a patient's room with syringes in his hand. The patient ended up with a broken arm, but apparently he wasn't able to actually make any injections. Cullen was accused of giving patients drugs at unscheduled times. Cullen worked at Elston Hospital in Elston, Pennsylvania from November 1998 to March 1999. On December 30th, 1998, he murdered yet another patient with digoxin. A coroner's blood test showed lethal amounts of digoxin in the patient's blood, but an investigation was inclusive and nothing pointed definitively to Cullen as the murderer. Cullen was able to continue to find work. 
a nationwide nursing shortage made it difficult for hospitals to recruit nurses, and no reporting mechanism or other systems existed to identify nurses with mental health issues or employment problems. Cullen took a job at a burn unit in Lehigh Valley Hospital in Allentown, Pennsylvania in March 1999. During his tenure at Lehigh Valley Hospital, Cullen murdered one patient and attempted to murder another. To give you an idea what happens in a healthcare shortage, um, what happened at the beginning of COVID, they had trouble getting uh, home healthcare aides and uh, PCAs are primary care assistants, like people who go into people's homes and help people. So what they started doing was with the programs where they would train people, they would literally allow people to go straight to work as soon as they completed uh, their training portion where they would do the classwork and they would just basically were skipping the part where they had to get their clinical hours. So that tends to be what happens in the United States when there's a healthcare shortage and there's like, I can't speak to what happened during this one for nurses, but I, I know that recently during COVID, when it came to uh, PCAs, they were skipping the clinical hours and they were letting them go straight from the schoolwork portion. Some of the programs were letting them go straight from the schoolwork portion into people's homes as PCAs because they were so desperately in need of PCAs. Plus it was COVID. A lot of people did not want to go into people's homes and work um, as primary care assistants because they were so scared of being exposed to COVID. So they really were in a situation much like this where they're like, screw it, we'll just take what we can get. In April 1999, Cullen voluntarily resigned from Lehigh Valley Hospital and took a job at St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Cullen worked in St. Luke's cardiac care unit. Over the next three years, he murdered five more patients and attempted to murder two others. In January 2000, Cullen attempted suicide again. He put a charcoal grill in his bathtub, lit it, and hoped that the carbon monoxide gas would kill him. That has to be one of the most elaborate um, methods I've ever seen. I'm just trying to, <laughs> um, obviously he's very disturbed. He, he desperately continually kept crying out for help and no one was really giving him the level of care and help he needed, but I'm not belittling that. It just, this is just such an elaborate and thought he had to have thought, put a lot of thought into this to come up with this. And so I'm just kind of I'd like to say, I guess, flummoxed, confused at how you come to the decision, uh, a charcoal grill in your bathtub, hoping to be poisoned by carbon monoxide. That just, just seems like such a unrealistic way to try and kill yourself. That's just, I don't know. I'm a little confused. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but not much of this makes any sense. Neighbors smelled the smoke and called the fire department and the police. Cullen was taken to the hospital and to a psychiatric facility, but was back home the following day. This is the problem. Um, I have had clients before in my caseload that um, have needed care. They have been sent to what we call crisis center. 
and literally they've been out within two or three days or they've only been held over the weekend and then the behavior repeats and the behavior repeats and they're in and out and they're in and out because they don't get the level of care they needed. And a lot of times what we hear is they don't have insurance that will cover the length of stay that they need. So this type of in and out, in and out when there's severe mental health issues is actually pretty common, unfortunately, in the United States. Um, like I said, I've witnessed it multiple times myself, uh, not to this level, but I have witnessed it. Um, so it is pretty common to have something like this happen and then just be shuffled back out without being kept, you know, at least on a 24 or 72 hour hold to make sure they don't just go back home and hurt themselves again. No one suspected that Colin was murdering his patients while working at St. Luke's Hospital until a co-worker accidentally found vials of unused medication in a sharps disposal bin. For those of you who don't know what a sharps disposal bin is, um, it's the usually they're red bio disposal bins on a wall where you put the syringes um, or like if you have the type of um, EpiPens where it's just the tops, the just the the puncture parts um those pop off on some types of different medication um injectable medications where it's just the needle part that pops off that's the sharps disposal bin is the drugs are not valuable outside the hospital and were not used for recreational use so their theft seemed curious and in need of an investigation this investigation showed that Cullen had taken the medication and he was fired and escorted from the building in June of 2002. Seven St. Luke's nurses who worked with Cullen later met with the Lehigh County District Attorney to alert the authorities of their suspicion that Cullen had used drugs to kill the patients. They pointed out that between January and June 2002, Cullen had worked 20% of the hours on his unit but was present for nearly two-thirds of the deaths. But investigators never looked into his past, and the case was dropped nine months later for lack of evidence. Cullen worked for a short time at Sacred Heart Hospital in Allentown, but did not get along with his co-workers and left. In September 2002, Cullen found a job at Somerset Medical Center in Somerset, New Jersey. Cullen worked in Somerset's critical care unit. Cullen's depression worsened, and even though he had begun dating, a local woman was still struggling. Cullen murdered eight more patients and attempted to murder another by June. Once more, his drugs of choice were digoxin and insulin. On June 18, 2003, Cullen attempted to murder Philip Gregor, a patient at Somerset. Gregor survived and was discharged. However, he died six months later of natural causes. Soon afterwards, the hospital's computer system showed that Cullen was accessing the records of patients he was not assigned to. Co-workers kept seeing him in patients' rooms. Computerized drug dispensing cabinets were showing that Cullen was requesting medications that patients had never been prescribed. The executive director of the New Jersey Poison Information and Education System warned Somerset Medical Center in July of 2003 that at least four of the suspicious overdoses indicated the possibility that an employee was killing patients, but the hospital put off contacting authorities until October. By then, Cullen had killed another five patients and attempted to kill a sixth. State officials 
penalized the hospital for failing to report a non-fatal insulin overdose in August. The overdose had been administered by Colin. When Colin's final victim died of low blood sugar in October, the medical center finally alerted state authorities. An investigation into Colin's employment history revealed the past suspicions about his involvement with prior deaths. Somerset Medical Center fired Cullen on October 31, 2003 for lying on his job application. Police kept him under surveillance for several weeks until they had finished their investigation. Cullen was arrested on one count of murder and one count of attempted murder at a restaurant in December 14, 2003. On that day, Cullen had admitted to the Reverend Florian Gale to the murder of the Reverend Florian Gale and the attempted murder of Tenkeyashu Han, both patients at Somerset. Colin said he administered overdoses to patients to spare them from being coded or going into cardiac or respiratory arrest and being listed as a code blue emergency. Colin has told detectives that he could not bear to witness or hear life-saving attempts. Colin also claims he gave patients overdoses so he could end their suffering and prevent hospital personnel from dehumanizing them. Investigators say that he is and may have caused patients themselves to suffer, but he appears not to realize that this contradicts his claims of wanting to save them from further pain and suffering. Similarly, Colin has told investigators that although he often thought about murdering his victims over several days, as he witnessed their suffering, the decision to commit the murder was performed on impulse. He told detectives in December of 2003 that he lived most of his life in a fog and that he blacked out the memory of murdering most of his victims. He said he could not recall how many of them there were or why he had chosen them. In some cases, Colin has adamantly denied committing murders at a given facility, but after reviewing medical records, then he would later admit that he was involved in the patient's deaths there. So like on one hand, he would be like, oh, I wanted to put them out of their suffering. I don't like watching suffering, but then he would give them very painful, gruesome deaths. So he would cause their suffering. And then he would say, oh, I was in a fog. I don't remember. I don't know who I kill. And then he would say, well, I absolutely didn't kill anybody at this place. But then they would show him medical records. and He'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I totally did that. So he was just playing games with them. He was all over the place. In April 2004, Colin pled guilty in New Jersey court to killing 13 patients and attempting to kill two others with lethal injections while employed at Somerset. As part of his plea agreement, he promised to cooperate with authorities if they did not seek the death penalty. A month later, he pled guilty to the murder of three more patients in New Jersey. In November 2004, Colin pled guilty in a Pennsylvania court to a killing six patients and trying to kill three or others. As of July 2005, Colin remained in the Somerset County Jail in New Jersey as authorities were continuing to investigate the possibility of his involvement in other deaths. Cullen is currently serving a sentence of life without parole for 30 years to be served consecutively with his other sentences in Pennsylvania. Uh, He was sentenced to 11 life sentences in New Jersey. Um, He would be eligible for parole after 397 years. So basically he's serving natural life. He is being held at the New Jersey State Prison in Trenton, New Jersey. He was brought into the courtroom of Lehigh County 
President Judge William Pratt for sentencing. Cullen, who was upset with the judge, kept repeating, Your Honor, you need to step down. He said that for consecutively 30 straight minutes until Platt had Cullen gagged with a cloth and duct tape. Now, obviously, he has mental health issues. Obviously, there's a lot going on. But this is thoroughly dehumanizing. This is thoroughly unacceptable. And if you ever want to see how awful this is, um, this happened to one of the defendants in the trial of the Chicago 7. If you ever watched that movie on Netflix by um, Alan Sorkin, it is absolutely heartbreaking. No matter how you feel about the person, it instantly makes you feel bad for them. I'm not saying anybody ever felt bad for this man, but it, it's horrible to watch. It's difficult and it's not anything that anyone should ever do. No matter how angry the judge should be with him, it's not something that should be done. He could have easily, uh, he could have held him in contempt. He could have put him in jail, you know, for a few days until he was ready to behave. There's so many other things he could have done that would have been so much better than this. So this is, for me, thoroughly reprehensible. It, it just was unnecessary. Even after being gagged, Cullen continued to try and repeat the phrase. In his hearing, Pratt gave him an additional six life sentences. In addition to the other sentences pronounced on the same day in another county, Cullen is currently doing 18 life sentences. So like I said, he's doing natural life. He's never getting out of jail. Cullen is largely able to move from facility to facility undetected because of the lack of reporting requirements and inadequate legal protection for employers. New Jersey and Pennsylvania, like most states, require healthcare facilities to report suspicious deaths only in egregious cases, and penalties for failing to report incidents were minor. Many states did not give investigators the legal authority to discover where a worker had previously been employed. Employers feared to investigate incidents or give a bad employment reference for fear that such actions might trigger a lawsuit. So for those of you who don't know, in the United States, some states um, limit what you can say when someone is fired. So you can't actually give a negative reference. So like, say you fire someone because they're a bad employee, like versus someone had a bad day, the rest of their employment record is spotless, but say they were just thoroughly overworked and something slipped through the cracks, but it was a big deal. And so you just felt like you had to let that person go. That might be an instance where the employer is like, you know what, we're still going to give you a good reference. You know, you were a good worker. You did really well for us the whole time versus someone who um, working in inpatient treatment, say someone actually hooked up with a client in they can't say that they cannot tell you when you call that we fired them because they were inappropriate with a client. They can't say that. What they can do, all they can do is confirm or all they can do is confirm your employment. And usually when all they do is confirm your employment, they get kind of the idea that your hands are tied. And so 
it varies state to state. Some some states, all you're allowed to do is confirm people's employment. Other states, you can get away with, you know, wording things in a very specific manner where technically you're not saying anything negative, but it, like if you say it in a specific way, it it's your like intonation, your tone, you know, that will let them know. So it, it's very difficult in the United States when you do fire someone for cause, if someone's inappropriate, if someone, you know, could have slapped somebody, like it's very difficult because in certain states, you cannot give someone a bad reference in case someone doesn't get hired specifically because of your reference. Say that it, it takes them another 10 years to get a job again. They can always, they could sue you and say that it's your fault that I'm, they could say I'm unhirable again. And so that's why, in the United States, people are very careful and a lot of people won't give bad references because they're so scared they're going to get sued. Prompted by the Cullen case, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and 35 other states adopted new laws which encourage employers to give honest appraisals of workers' job performance in which employers get immunity if they provide a truthful employee appraisal. Many of the laws passed in 2004 and 2005 strengthened disclosure requirements in healthcare facilities. So this is specific to healthcare facilities, this law. Other facilities, it's very different. Like I said, there's a lot of places where <laughs> I have worked where I've seen people get fired for some pretty ridiculous things. And then like literally within two weeks, they're hired within the same field. And you're like, I don't understand. How does that possibly happen? And I've seen it with my own eyes. So, and it's for fear of getting a lawsuit. They absolutely, and I know hiring practices at some of these places. And like I said, they don't say that they were fired. They just confirm their length of employment and that they worked for them. Um, they require more, they require them to report healthcare facilities to report proper patient care and require licensed healthcare professionals to undergo extensive criminal background checks and to be fingerprinted at their own cost. So this is actually something that I've undergone. I've actually had to do different levels of back background checks, having worked in inpatient care. Um, uh, I've done the just the regular state background check. I've done the FBI background check. I have been fingerprinted. It is pretty standard practice. Um, uh, pretty much every place I've worked in the past 15 years of my life has required a quarry or a criminal background check. Like I said, the bare minimum is they check your criminal background for the state you live in. I have worked at a couple facilities that have done the FBI level background check. So they check to see if I've been arrested anywhere in the state or anywhere in the country in the entirety of the United States. And then I have worked at one place that have done the background check that doesn't just the whole shebang. They don't just check to see if I've been arrested within the United States. They also... Um, do the level to see um, and and when you do to let you know when you do a background check you give them permission you have to fill out a paper that gives them permission to run a background check on you so if you refuse to do a background check obviously you are basically screening yourself out of employment you're basically saying I'm not willing to and they're obviously not going to even consider you for employment so um, I've also done the background check where I'm giving them permission to check and see if I've gone to do inpatient mental health care. And they're not necessarily going to screen you out, you know, just because you have gone to in inpatient health care. What they're looking for are patterns of behavior. Obviously, if you've been hospitalized 20 something times repeatedly, you know, you've been hospitalized every single year. That's different. It shows you're not taking care of yourself, you know, and 
they'll know you've been hospitalized versus if you see a therapist, that's not going to pop up on this type of a background check. It's, it's hospitalizations versus, you know, and this is something, like I said, that you give them permission. So obviously, if you're not giving them permission, you're screening yourself out of the job. You're saying, no, you know, I'm not going to agree to that. And usually when people find out there's a quarry and they know they have something that's going to come up, they just won't apply for the job. That's the point in the process where they're like, you know what, I'm withdrawing. I changed my mind. And same with the fingerprinting. And it's just like drug tests too. A lot of people, the drug test comes, they know they're going to pop positive. That's usually when they bow out. Um, but, you know, recently I've seen a lot of things in hiring here in the United States. I've seen a lot of people get all the way through the process and they get jobs and they just don't show up on the first day, which is insane, but it happens. So, you know, things are changing and it just, it's part of the job market and process in the United States. But that was the case of Charles Cullen, a murderous nurse here in the United States. Next week, we are going to be looking into a corrupt city treasurer who did the absolute unthinkable in a way to cover up his crimes. And he did it in a manner that became a part of the pop culture lexicon here in the United States. And one of the most possibly misunderstood pop songs or grunge songs, depending on how you look at it, in the 90s. So in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things. <laughs>